0: I'd like to turn with you this morning to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll read the first seven verses. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. And the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, as in day day. Midian, for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and the garments rolled in blood, for this shall be burned and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." And of the increase of his government. And his peace shall be no end. Upon the throne of David. And upon his kingdom. To order it. And to establish it. With judgment. And with justice. From henceforth. Even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Will perform this. Let us pray. Heavenly Father again. I pray for uh, guidance from your word. Lord as uh, we listen to the words. Of the ancient words of the prophet Isaiah. Father, I trust and I pray that our hearts are open for the word of the Lord, Lord, and that it would be acceptable in thy sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, all throughout the Old Testament, we have great prophecies concerning the coming of the Savior, great pictures and types all throughout, starting in those very early chapters of Genesis of the coming of the Redeemer. Ever since that dreadful Chapter, chapter 3 in Genesis, when men fell into misery and darkness, we see God very quickly afterwards coming to the rescue with a promise. That fall of men not only affected his will and his behavior, but also, of course, his relation to God, but also nature itself. Childbirth would be harder. There would be sickness, storms and thorns and thistles. As we just sung about, earthquakes were now the picture Of the world we live in. The earth was cursed, and man was cursed, and he would experience death. The walk with the Lord in the cool of the garden that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the beginning was now marred by a sinful nature. They were hiding from his presence. We see this evidence of darkness very shortly in the the life of the, the patriarchs. Our first parents, their children, we see murder and all these things all the way until today, I'm sure, in our lives. Perhaps you notice it this morning when you're with your family unwrapping gifts, noticing your family, or maybe on the way to church here, our sinful nature comes to the surface. But long before that symbol of the curse, those thorns, the, the crown of thorns was pressed on the head of our blessed Savior, coming Savior was promised to Adam and Eve, and that this is our wonderful God that gives and is merciful. And this morning, I would like to look at probably one of the most familiar prophecies concerning the Savior in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah sometimes is called the evangelist of the Old Testament. He gives the most clear and beautiful pictures of the work and the person of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Isaiah speaks about Emmanuel, God with us, the sign of a virgin, so conceive. He speaks of the wonderful attributes of Christ in, in this chapter here. He speaks most clearly about the suffering Savior, his justifying work in Isaiah 53, are precisely laid out. He speaks about the light of the world in whom the Gentiles, the nations, we sung that this morning, the desire of nations would come. And all, but also all throughout Isaiah, we see the gloom and doom and warnings. But sprinkled throughout these warnings and these judgment calls upon the people of Israel are the loving call of God. Who would not be encouraged with the, the loving kindness of the Lord in Isaiah 55, where Isaiah writes, Ho to everyone that thirsted, come ye to the waters, ye that have no money, come ye, buy and eat. Ye, come, buy milk and wine without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for what is not bread? And wherefore do you labor what is not, but satisfy it not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Also right at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah says to the people of God, Come now, let us reason together, said the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah personally was brought low when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord in his temple, his train overflowing, the throne of grace, the seraphims around him crying, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And when he saw that, he said he was undone. He was ruined, as it were. He was silenced in light of such holiness, contrasted with his own sinfulness. Isaiah's writing much for what we just sung this morning, the coming king, the grace that he gives, the adoration that is due to him, who is God manifested in the flesh, fully God and fully man. And so God has provided the problem that was caused has provided a solution to the problem that was caused in Genesis 6, an all-sufficient Savior and Prince of Peace. So now, and this is very briefly, we should have really have 10 sermons on these these verses, but uh, we'll look very briefly at this chapter, Isaiah 9. It was written about 700 years before the star that shone in Bethlehem and the angels sung. Christ is set forth as a prophet-priest, and king in this chapter. But before we do that, let us briefly consider the context in which this chapter it was given. If you look at the end of chapter 8 there, it ends with, and they shall look on the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. If you look in chapter 7 and chapter 8, it speaks about uh, King Ahaz and God's dealing with this king. He was... Extraordinarily wicked, actually, but, um, he, and he refused to listen to God. He sought counsel from others in spite of promises giving. Judah was being attacked by the northern tribes together with Syria against Judah, and they sought to go to war against Jerusalem. find that in chapter 7. <clears throat> Anyway, he warn, or worry and fear amongst the people of Judah and King Ahaz. But instead of seeking the Lord, he sought his alliance with the king of Assyria. Isaiah was sent to him. He told him, don't worry. These are just burning sticks for a while. They'll be dealt with. Trust the Lord. Be quiet. Don't plan your own devices. But if you don't listen to me, you shall not stand, Isaiah told him. God in mercy told Isaiah, you can ask me for a sign. And he would not. We said, no, I won't do that. I won't tempt the Lord. He figured it was temptation. And the Lord gave him a sign, the virgin birth. Therefore, the Lord himself give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here we see the great promise given to an unbelieving king, which is again repeated in Matthew Now Ahaz wouldn't listen. He sought his own counsel and the consequences that followed were gloom and doom and exile. He and Israel had looked for help elsewhere, help in the wrong places. Salvation outside the God of Israel who had done so much in the past. They gone to foreign kings and other gods. This chapter is summed up in gloominess and in darkness and darkness all befalls on us when we depart the word of god his light and his love as a person but also as a nation but thankfully it doesn't stop there we have this great chapter 9 god does not forsake his people he doesn't forsake his promises that he has made all the way in genesis 3 aas can do what he wants but the remnant of god's people he gives precious promises After all that gloom and doom in those chapters, light and love and life is given in this one. The darkness will not always be there, though they are now in deep distress. It will not be their final lot for the people of Israel. And although the northern kingdom was about to be attacked by Assyria, and the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali and others would be carried off into captivity, one day... In that land a great light would dawn. The light of the world. In that land of Zebulun and Naphtali. It was an area where there was a lot of mixture of half Jews. Many Gentiles lived there. It was despised by the rest of the Jews. Matthew again interprets this verse for us. When he talks about going from doom and gloom to glory, wonder and light. And he says, and leaving Nazareth, talking about the Lord Jesus. He came and dwelt in Capernaum which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. To them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has sprung up. And from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in this place of great misery, a great light would come. The one in whom is no darkness at all. The one that we need so badly as well. And from chapter two to verse five, we have a great picture drawn out for us, what this great light will do, what it will accomplish, what it will change and what it would bring. And even though when Isaiah wrote this, these people had not seen yet this light, he is so certain of the occurrence that he describes it very vividly as though it already has happened. Verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. John Calvin writes about this. He speaks of future events in the past tense and so brings before them the immediate view of the people that in the destruction of the city and their captivity in what appear to be their other destruction, they may behold the light of God. When all is helpless and hopeless, Isaiah, by God's spirit, shoots up a blazing word of hope, like a great firework display of hope, light, and glory. And here we see the mighty mercy of God concerning the Son foretold. Now, perhaps the state of this previous chapter is your state this morning. It's your condition of darkness, of sin, ignorance of the Christ of God. You're like King Ahaz, ignoring his word, solving your problems by human inventions, and not laying hold of the greatest gift that we sung about this morning, Emmanuel, God with us. In the midst of all the glitter and the festivities of the season, deep down, you know, you're outside of Christ. There's darkness And all earthly gifts, hobbies, work, whatever it may be, fall short of solving your problem. The sin that is between you and a trice holy God. Yet in these verses, these first seven verses, we see a great reversal. As a result of this light coming into the scene, these two tribes here, where there was darkness and sin, calamity and death, ignorance of God and sin we see deliverance we see light we see knowledge and peace and victory towards eternity by the incarnation of the son of God in verse 2 when speaking of the shadow of death and darkness yes indeed the invasion would happen people would be carried off and, but Isaiah yet is speaking about a deeper problem here the problem that sin brings to us and the condition of fallen men That picture of the bondage that Egypt had in in Israel is often used throughout scripture, the bondage of sin, being captivated by it and darkened by it. Yet from verses 3 to 5, the prophet uses and gives us pictures of victory, of triumph and of great success. He speaks in verse 3 about the nation being enlarged through the ministry of of this light that is about to come. He doesn't, hasn't told us yet who it is. But of course we know. But through this Savior. The nations would be brought into true Israel. Simeon in the temple. When he was holding the Savior. Said this is the light to lighten the Gentiles. And the glory of thy people Israel. He was holding the glory of God. God manifested in the flesh. In his hands. In his arms. He knew. This was the one that Abraham had been promised to. That all the nations of the earth would be blessed in. And Abraham would be a great nation. The Lord Jesus spoke of other sheep that he had that would be brought into the fold. And they would be one shepherd. Israel through this man is about to be enlarged. Now the nations, all the tribes and people and tongues as we read in Revelation are brought to the Savior, to this child that has been given. A universal joy comes from Him. We have seen very shortly after birth that the wise men came. Gentiles came, how they knew, we're not 100% sure, but they knew through the star, of course, but they knew it was a king of the Jews and they came there to worship Him. The pictures of the Gentiles coming in. So they go from darkness to walking in light, from being torn asunder by kingdoms. And by being invaded to being made a larger kingdom that will never be destroyed. In verse 3, he speaks about this light comes in like the joy of harvest. Hard work has been done. Thorn and thistles have been pulled throughout the year. Food would dringle. you know. It's not like we have now. We always have food in our stores, but people had to be careful with their food. They had to plan for the new harvest. And then the harvest would come. And would be taken off the field. There would be food once again. Life could go on. And they rejoiced. Also verse 3. It says the joy over the dividing of the spoil. After fighting a long war. Dangerous war perhaps. We've seen that in Joshua. There would be rejoicing in the spoil. Coming home to their families. In verse 4. Isaiah starts. Oh, for the reason of this rejoicing. In the word for. This verse, and in the next two verses, he uses that. Why all this rejoicing? Why all this victory? Why this language of light and life? Well, he compares Israel to an animal that had his burden taken off of him with a yoke heavy on his shoulders. Perhaps you can see in your mind's eye an ox or a donkey being burdened with a heavy load. The owner is beating him with a rod to keep him working in that hot Judean sun. And at the end of the day, Burden is being lifted. Maybe you've gone hiking and you've been carrying a very heavy backpack with cans of whatnot. And at the end of the day, you can take it off. The burden is being lifted. Or what more is the problem and grief that the burden of sin is not in our own life? The sin, the sinner's waywardness from God, the corruption of sin. Who can bear it or who can stop it on his own strength? When well, the Bible speaks of enslavement. In Egypt, Israel had understood physically what it meant to be oppressed by Pharaoh. Type of Satan, really. Until Moses brought him out from under it. But this here, what Isaiah speaks of, was self-inflicted. People themselves had caused a departure from the living God. Going after their own plans. Trusting themselves. Serving different gods. The rod of sin and the burden of sin is heavy. Alienation, the Bible speaks about. Sin is pictured as pretty dreadful and dark. Alienation from God is a dreadful thing to be in if that is your state. How kind and yet how gracious God is that in their sin, He sends them this message of hope Come, let us reason together, He says. Isaiah verse 4 refers to a particular incident that Gideon had brought. When they had won the battle against the Midianites. You know in the book of Judges you always read about the evil that the Israelites did. And then they would pray and call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord would rescue them and so on. Well this had happened also here. Israel called upon the name of the Lord. And sought his help. You know, sometimes we only call the name of the Lord after we've done very stupid stuff. And so did Israel. And Gideon is sent. long story short, God shows his mighty hand. Gideon's army was reduced from 32,000 to 300. And um, those 300 only had pitchers and trumpets to fight this army of the Midianites with. Hundreds of thousands. You can see why Isaiah picks this account. Only one can remove the sin. It's a miracle that we carry. Only one can be a divine burden lifter. And that is the Lord Jesus. And just as it was humanly impossible for 300 men to win the the, the battle against hundreds of thousands. So it is impossible for man to lift up the burden and the punishment of sin. And to stand before God justified. There's only one that can set us free from the oppressor and the wages of sin and the tyranny of the devil. Isaiah has not yet said in this poem that, but he is who it is, but he is showing the fruit of what this light, this person will do. In verse 5, it's a bit of a difficult verse, but he gives the sense that the garments of those beaten enemies are now being used for the fuel of the fire. Weapons of warfare are burned, are no longer needed. And then in verse 6, finally Isaiah gets to how these promises are fulfilled. And who it is talking about. What is the ground of these things? The yoke being lifted, the oppression being removed in a supernatural way. The light that is coming. The weapons of the warrior being destroyed. And in whom this would be. He starts out at once, again, once again with the word for. Unto us a child has been born. Unto us a son has been given. This is the reason. This is the hope. This is the rescue. It's all grounded in him. Hope and rescue are in a person. He says unto us. He includes himself into it as a prophet. He knows his own need for this child. He has seen God's blazing holiness and found himself lacking or wanting. Unto us, this child is born. Unto us, the son of man will be given and the son of God. Notice a child is born, a son is given. A son is not born. Christ is from all eternity past, the son of God. The government will be laid upon his shoulder. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He rules creation as we see his ministry in the New Testament. And he is authority over the angels and demons. They are subject unto him. John Gill writes about this government being placed on his shoulder. He said, not only of the world in general, but of the church in particular. He is the king of saints. His government consists in ruling the hearts of his people and causing them to submit unto him. In subduing their enemies, their sins, in protecting them, and in supplying them with everything necessary. And this government is delegated to him from his father, and laid upon him, is not of this world, it's spiritual, it's righteously administered, it's peaceable, and will continue forever. Then Isaiah he gives this child five names, titles that are given as is a full picture of the Lord of glory that is given unto us. Isaiah is not saying that this child will be named by these names in his lifetime, because we know they called him Jesus. But rather that these titles, these names are a proper and an accurate picture and descriptions of who he is and his offices, his character, in short of the person of Christ. In these verses, we have that full picture of the Christian essential doctrine, really the deity and the humanity of our Lord Jesus, his lordship, his word, his counsel and authority. What type of governor is he? What is he like? Well, he starts out with he is wonderful. This word wonder translated often as wonderful in in many of our versions. But in the Old Testament, it's also often translated, if you look it up as something supernatural. Miracle, a marvel, something unique about him, something glorious. Psalm 118, 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Wonderful his name shall be called. A sense of wonder and awe. It's a miracle. Miracle in his being that He is the, He is God with two natures in, in one person. He is wonderful in his love to sinners, in his wisdom and humility, his meekness and patience, to name a few. He was wonderful in the the ministry he performed, the miracles he did in his public life. From his birth to his baptism in the Jordan, the temptation in the wilderness, his doctrines and miracles, and his transfiguration on the mount where People, They could see the glory that came from him. He was wonderful. And of course, he was wonderful in his death. That the Lord of life and of glory would die on his own will. Sent by the Father. And that for sinners, even the chief of sinners, Paul spoke. And that he, in that way, he would procure life for those that trust in him and abolish death destroy him that had the power of it being the devil to obtain that eternal life indeed he is wonderful this is he who is set forth as being given unto us have you considered that here this morning do you have received this wonderful gift have you plunged the depth of all that the savior is for us When Manoah and his wife were visited by the angel concerning the birth of Samson, it was a Christophany and appearance of Christ as an angel of the Lord. They asked him, they asked the angel the name and he said, why dost thou ask after my name, seeing it is secret? It's the same word translated wonderful. It is a miracle, the babe in the manger is dependent on Mary as he grows, he's being fed from his mother's breast, yet he is her creator and sustainer. It is a wonder, isn't it? He's the counselor. Our first parents listed, listened to the counsel of Satan, it was a counsel of death and destruction, sin and darkness. We still feel it today. So God himself, the word manifested in the flesh, came to counsel us back to him. To bring us back in the fold. And unlike the serpent, the counsel that he has is the word of life. What did even his enemies say? No man ever spoke like this. He belongs to that eternal cabinet of the counsel in heaven. And all wisdom comes from him. Paul asks... In Romans, rhetorically, who has been his counselor? He is the counselor that never needed any counsel. Peter, when he spoke about all that the Lord had said, he said, you only have the words of eternal life. Paul, when he spoke about the riches of Christ, said, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the great treasury of divine riches. We heard that yesterday in Paul's sermon. And there is nothing apart from him that can be alongside of him. No one can add anything to him. Everything is hidden in him. And all these treasures are accessible to the believer. Where does your counsel come from this morning? Where does your counselor reside? Where is he at? Oh, seek him for your counsel. He bids us to come. Imagine the God of heaven and earth coming down in the flesh. And he asks us to come. He asks us to cast our burdens upon him. For he is full of grace and truth. Renounce all the counsel of this world that is contrary to his. And go to him. He was sent from the bosom of the father to us. He who flung the stars into space and made them by the power of his word asks us to come to him, to listen to his counsel. He who came to Bethlehem's cradle bids us to come and say, I will give you rest. Bethlehem means house of bread. The Lord Jesus is that bread of life that sustains us with the true bread from heaven. Only Christ can satisfy the needs that Men have, And we can see people going after all kinds of stuff. And you know where it ends? Apart from Christ. And he is the mighty God. Wonders of wonders. That this governor, this prince, is the mighty God. We've already spoken about this this morning. And we heard it yesterday about his deity. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And I know we're familiar with it. We believe, yeah, we believe that Jesus was God, but sometimes we kind of grow numb to it, isn't it? That we actually have to slow down and to consider who Christ was, taking upon human flesh and dwelling among us. No wonder that the angel in the fields of Ephrathah had to sing glory to God in the highest. You know, heaven was briefly opened the angels sung glory to God and on earth peace towards men. <clears throat> As they proclaim that this child is the invisible God made how he made himself visible. And he is tabernacling with his people. and He pits his tents, tent amongst us. God is manifested in the flesh. Become man. He became rejected and despised by those he had created. By those he holds every minute in his power. And he came subject to death, even the death of the cross. We sung it yesterday. Christ by highest heaven adored Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh that de- God had seen, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Doesn't that give you hope? Even as believers, sometimes you look at your own sinfulness, your own shortcomings, but you can meditate upon the great incarnation of the Lord Jesus, to meditate upon him. Both Old Testament and particularly, of course, the New Testament proclaim him to be God, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus does things that only God can do, creation, providence, miracles, the forgiving of sins, the apostles, of course, call him God, worship him as God, and pray to him as God. And unless we rightly think of Christ like this, we have no part of him. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, he shall die in your sins. There's the cults out there, there's liberal Christianity, has long given up the idea that Jesus is God. But it's the clear testimony of scripture. We learn from this title that there is in Christ an abundance of protection for us and the securing of our salvation because he is God. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we may, may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world was God. He was holy and perfect and without spot. He's also called the everlasting Father in this verse. What Isaiah is aiming at here is not the relation of Jesus towards the Father. Some have said, oh, see, this is the oneness doctrine of modalism, where the Father becomes the Son and the Son becomes the Spirit, so denying the triune the triune God. But He's speaking about the eternality of the Lord Jesus. Thy throne of God is forever and ever. Hebrews 1.88 says. And in Micah, that famous prophecy concerning Christ coming down to Bethlehem. <clears throat> he said, Yet out of thee shall come forth one unto me that is a ruler in Israel, whose going forth had been from old, from everlasting. Christ was always there. There was never a time, as we sung this morning again, that he did not exist. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and is to come. Secondly, it also terms, the term also gives us an idea of what he is like as a father, that he is very much like a father, that he cares for us as a father, an earthly father. He looks towards us with benevolent care and supplies our needs. That great picture of a shepherd that seeks the lost. He is like a father in the way he treats us. Isaiah 53 verse 10 speaks about Christ seeing his offspring through his work on the cross. Again, it's like a father begetting offspring. Points to his character. Even earthly fathers at times will die for their children as Christ did for us. Spurgeon writes, He is still the federal head and father of his people still the founder of gospel truth and of the christian system he is still the true life giver from whom wounds and by whose death we are quickened he reigns now as the patriarchal king he is still the loving family head and so in every sense he lives as a father but there is a sweet thought he neither dies himself nor becomes childless he does not lose his children Course, he speaks after the resurrection that this is a father who will never leave us or forsake us. Some of us have lost our parents, and all parents will one day go, but this is a father that will never leave us nor forsake us. Isaiah here is stacking up all the riches that are found in Christ as an all sufficient Savior. It's all we need. This is our God, he said to the people that dwelt. In darkness. Well, there's one more name that Isaiah gives the coming Emmanuel. And we already can feast much longer on the other ones I said this morning. I hope it will whet your appetite to dig in further. How wonderful his counsel was, how wonderful his person is, and like a father, how he cares for us, and how wonderful this mighty God gives us comfort. But he's also called the Prince of Peace. We started out this morning by recalling the great peace that once was in the Garden of Eden. Sin entering through Adam and Eve so entered into the human race and peace was destroyed. There was now something between God and man. Alienation and rebellion was now at the heart of all the sons of men. But God very early on, it seems just a few hours after that fall promised that there would be a serpent crusher, one that would reconcile God to men. Christ came into the world to die, to bring peace between God and men. The cradle was the beginning of his earthly work, but it would lead to the cross. One of the gifts that the wise men gave was that that myrrh, you know, that uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh was often used as an anointing in the temple for the priests, but it was also used with the The burial of the death of of, of a dead person. See a little picture of what was to come. Peace with God was the goal of his coming. And all that God had given him, he would gather in to himself. The reconciliation to God, not by force or conquest, as the Jews thought by laying down his life himself. Letting his enemies beat him and put him to death. And some of those enemies would come to faith because he prayed for them at the cross. And he took the wrath of God upon himself. He purchased his bride with his own blood. Glory be to God in the highest and peace on earth, the angel said. And that is the work of Christ. The Christ that Isaiah foretold has come, has lived that perfect life that you and I have fallen so short of. Jesus secures that peace. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When Christ died, he wiped out everything. We trust in him. Everything that was against us, the handwriting and the ordinances was against us. It was contrary to us. He nailed it to the cross. Believers remember that Christ had made a permanent, permanent peace between him and sinners who repent and believe on the Son, who bore God's anger for them. Paul writes about the peace, that Jesus is our peace, that we have peace through the the blood of the cross. Shalom, peace. The word's picture not only a cessation of strife and of calm that follows, but also a wholeness and a completeness in Christ, in the Savior. These terms speak of the peace that believers have with God and also subsequently with men around us, that, but mostly that they have with peace with God in their hearts and in their minds. And only those who are under this prince have that peace that Paul spoke about, that passeth all Understanding. In the most dreadful times, in sickness, or in, in, in cases of danger or misery, persecution, as we see many believers are, they have that peace. You can read it sometimes in the voice of the martyrs. They have that peace that passes all understanding because they have peace with God. And once you have peace with God, you have everything, isn't it? May the Lord help us to see, maybe for the first time or again that gift of his son Jesus Christ and for believers to learn to dwell on Christ and to plunge into the riches that he gives by faith but if you're outside of him to bow to him to come to him not to wait the psalmist says kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are they that put their trust in him amen Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you for that great peace that you have offered to the world. Father, we thank you for the Son of God who left us not alone, Father, but who died for our sins. And Father, not only died for our sins, but also through your Spirit drew us. Father, I pray for anyone here, young or old, That doesn't have that peace really. Maybe gone to church for many a Christmas. Heard all the songs. And the accounts of the coming king. But never really having closed with the Savior. And gone to him. Help us to look outside of ourselves. To him that loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus name. Amen.